thank you, Caleb. I'll get that switched over in a second, guys. Matthew chapter 28. We, of course, are in the passage of the resurrection of Jesus Christ this morning. I have to tell you, I don't expect you to understand this, but being in my position right now on a religious holiday may seem like really easy. <laughs> it's, it's actually quite the opposite. microphone. It's actually difficult, a little bit difficult for me. It's a challenge, definitely, to do this microphone without looking at it. Where's the power button? All right, there we go. Matthew chapter 28. The biggest challenge on a morning like this for me is a little bit managing expectations. I'd, I'd love to tell you that I'm immune to expectations, um, but I'm not. And I am human, just like you, and maybe you don't deal with that. Um, many times, the way many of us deal with expectations is we either care too much or we don't care at all. Right, And so it's, it's a challenge finding that balance. But on a morning like this, when I want to do what the Lord wants for us this morning in a Christian nation that even though many of you may not, well, many is not the right word there, some of you may not even really understand the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we've all heard it multiple times. Right, We've heard the concept. And... We really can get to a plethora of preaching and teaching on the death and burial of Jesus Christ really anytime we want. Going on the internet, turn on the radio, you can see it on TV in some form or fashion. Um, can't guarantee all that is correct, but it's there, and it's being talked about. So out of all of that, what do, what do I bring? And I wrestled with it. Um, I believe we have what the Lord would have for us this morning. I do not intend on keeping you for a long service this morning. After the morning service, we do have a candy drop for the children. It'll be at the opposite end of the building. We'll, uh, we'll dismiss you for that. You can go up and get your children, and, and then we want to um, honor your families for coming today and honor the Lord in the way we observe his holiday. But we're in Matthew chapter 28, and I just want to show you a few things this morning that were a blessing to me. As I studied over this past week, his death and his burial, what led up to it, what, in, what was entailed in it, studying all the phrases and all the questions and all of the Hebrew cultural terms and what do they actually mean and what was actually going on during that time so that I could help you really understand the impact of this occasion. And there's no way I can do that in one message. I mean, Matthew himself took almost three chapters, very detailed, 50, 60 verses each chapter. So we're not going to get it done in 25, 30 minutes. But I would like to point out a few things to you. We're in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 1. Would you read along the passage with me? I'm reading from the King James, verse 1. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning, and his raiment white as snow. 
And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. Where are we at this morning? In, in the narrative, the women are arriving at the tomb. The resurrection has already happened. The Bible says there was an earthquake. I personally believe that earthquake was the result uh, not of the stone being rolled away, but of the angel's impact on this earth. The Bible says an angel descended from heaven to roll away the stone. Why did he roll away the stone? We don't know for sure, but it wasn't because Jesus needed to get out. I mean, God resurrected himself from the grave. He didn't need somebody to move the stone for him. I believe it was so we could see in. So the women, his followers, could confirm in their minds and hearts the start of Christianity and could seal in their spirit, could lock that faith in to something that was real. God knew us. As much as God tells us that it's all about faith and he requires faith, and he does, he also knows that we're flesh. And he gives us a certain amount of evidence. He was so good to give it to these women and to the disciples that came and then to have several gospel writers record it for us, eyewitness testimony of his resurrection. It is real. It's not a story. It's a miracle. Speaking of miracles, I think we would all agree that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ was absolutely a miracle. What is a miracle? A miracle is when God, creator of the universe, steps down into the natural world and sets apart those natural laws. And only God could do that. God comes down, and what would normally happen, he sets that aside. He does something that is supernatural. I mean, we've seen it all through the scriptures, right? God has and has demonstrated his ability to perform miracles. Think of creation. What a miracle that you and I are sitting here today. The flood. He floods the entire earth, but saves eight people on a boat with two of every animal and seven of some. Miracle. The ten plagues in Egypt. Miracle, parting the Red Sea, allowing millions of his children to cross over on dry ground. Miracle after miracle after miracle, the least, not the least of which was when Jesus Christ came. And when Jesus Christ came, what did we see? God in the flesh performing more miracles, doing things that God very easily does, sets aside the natural laws that you and I are governed by, and does something miraculous. God has that ability. I personally want to focus on something else this morning. Not the miracle that the resurrection was, but to me, what is even a greater miracle, to me, the superintendence and sovereignty that God showed in everything leading up to that miracle. That, to me, is much more astounding. I mean, God could have, if you ever thought of this, God could have come in and just taking care of sin in his own way. He did not have to leave 33 years up to this point to get Jesus to the cross. He could have appeared right out of heaven, done what he needed to do, justice was served, it's over. 33 years? And that's, that's not the long of it, or the short of it. There was so much involved in that. We're going to look at just a little bit of it. When we're talking about God's sovereignty today, we know that's not a Bible word, okay? But it's a Bible concept. It's throughout the Bible. 
People have used the Bible to define it. The Gospel Coalition, they said the sovereignty of God is the fact that He is Lord over creation. As sovereign, He exercises His rule. Uh, Easton's Bible Dictionary says his it's His absolute right to do all things according to His own good pleasure. The Holman Bible Dictionary says that all things come from and depend upon God. That's what it means to be sovereign. But it does not mean that everything which occurs in the world is God's will. DesiringGod.com, he says, God's sovereignty is his right and power to do all that he decides to do. What we'll be pointing out this morning is not necessarily his sovereign power, but what happens within his sovereign power. What happens because of his sovereign power. We, we might call that the divine providence of God. Providence, the fact that God provides God sees to it that everything that needs to be done to fulfill His will and His purposes happens. The providence of God. The providence of God seen in the crucifixion and leading up to the resurrection, which we're just going to look at a couple of them this morning, is amazing. To me, much more miraculous than the act itself. Sometimes the sheer power and impact of Christ's death, I think, kind of goes over our head or to the side doesn't really gain our focus like it should. We gloss over it. We're not struck by the intricacy of everything that actually happened and led up to our Lord dying and resurrecting from the grave. What led up to the resurrection of Jesus Christ being exactly what God wanted it to be. One pastor said something like this, the resurrection was a miracle, but it seems to me an even greater miracle was what led up to the resurrection. So this morning, I'd like to draw your attention to a couple things. As we just kind of look, retell the passage that we just talked about, right? The Sabbath day is now over. That's Saturday. It's the first day of the week. But for them, it was the day after Sabbath. Uh, you may not know this. I learned this this week, actually. The Jewish calendar back then did not have days of the week. Everything was titled according to the Sabbath day. Preparation day was preparation for what? It was preparation for the Sabbath. Sabbath day was what? The Sabbath day. Day after Sabbath was the day after Sabbath. They didn't have Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Everything was in reference to the God's holy day that he had set aside in the Ten Commandments. And here we are in Matthew chapter 28. It is the day after Sabbath. First day of the week, Sunday for us. The sun is rising. Mary is heading to the tomb again, bringing bringing spices with the other Mary to respectfully anoint their rabbi's body. And that may seem like commonplace to us, but please understand the great expense and respect that they are paying to Jesus, they are paying to a dead man. You and I look, oh, he's a risen Savior. That's not how they're looking at it right now. He's dead. A little despairing, actually, for them. They didn't understand what was going on. They had such high hopes for Jesus Christ, and now he's dead. They even, when he meets them later on, they even go over that with him, not knowing it was even him. And how could, could we believe? I mean, everything, our hopes and our dreams of, of the Messiah being here was in Jesus Christ, and now he's dead. But they're on their way to the tomb to pay respect for someone who had had such an impact on their life that it could not be denied, even though they didn't really understand what it was yet. 
When they arrive, they find the stone was rolled away, right? They, they hear the earth shake. We feel the earth shake. However that happened, they start to run. They get to the tomb. They find the stone has been rolled away. And they're able to see inside. The angel invites them, matter of fact, to see inside. They see that Jesus is gone. And he tells them, go quickly. <laughs> He's not here. Remember, that's what he said. He would rise, and he did. Now go tell his disciples the same thing. At least the ladies had the decency to come and pay their respects. Everybody else was off somewhere else, but they're here. Once they'd seen for themselves that their master was gone, the Bible says they ran. Quickly they went, both afraid and excited. You can imagine the adrenaline pumping that he's alive. What does that mean? Wait, I don't know what that means. I'm so super happy, but we didn't believe what he said. What, wait, what did he say? And all these things going through their minds, replaying the past uh, one or two or three years of their specific involvement with Jesus and his earthly ministry. And as amazing and earth-shattering as this event is, I want to draw you to God's providence in the whole mix, and I'll, I'll, be, I'll be timely with this. Number one, I want you to see God's providence in the schedule he uses to accomplish his purposes. You're welcome to take notes. I'm just going to be giving you thoughts this morning, but you can get some scripture references. If you have your bulletin, you can open it up. There's a blank spot in there for you to read and uh, to take notes this morning. God's providence in the schedule he uses to accomplish his purposes. What was the schedule? Had to be three days. Jesus' death had to be three days. In uh, chapter 28, verse 1, where we just was, it says, In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week. For us, this is Sunday. For them, it was the day after Sabbath. There was a, he, he tells us that for a reason. It had now been three days. The idea of the third day, it's throughout the Old Testament. We're not do a study on that. Matter of fact, actually, the Bibleproject.org, I think it is, has a great study on the third day throughout the Bible. I challenge you, go, go read that. It's a great study. All throughout the Old Testament. Jesus himself references the third day, or three days, 21 times in the Gospels. Only God could have controlled, think of this, only God could have controlled how long he stayed dead. You thought of that? I must confess I didn't realize the impact of that till this week. Just by very sheer fact that it took the will of God, who I know said he would lay down his life and he would raise it up again, but he proved it when he did it in three days. Let me show you how. The scripture is full. Number one, Jesus prophesied it himself. I think I have the scripture here. There we go. Right behind me. John chapter 2, verse 19. Here he is earlier in his ministry. And he gives this prophecy to the people there. Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building. Wilt thou rear it up in three days? He's standing in the actual temple when he says this. But he spake of the temple of his body. And when therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Three days is important because God said it. God said, I'm going to rise in three days. He said it way before it ever happened. By the way, this wasn't the only time, and this wasn't an isolated incident. It was actually so 
prolific that even the passers-by at the cross remembered him saying it. In Matthew 27, 40, as they're passing by the crucifixion scene, they're saying, they're throwing this in his face, saying, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Oh, they remembered. He wasn't hiding this fact. Three days. We see that not just that, but God set up this prophecy centuries before, centuries beforehand. We know the story of Jonah. Jonah, the disobedient prophet, fighting God's purpose and plan in his life. God has a great fish come, swallow Jonah, keeps him alive in the belly of this fish for three days and three nights. Just a coincidence? Don't think so. Who had the fish come and swallow Jonah? God, who told everybody that in three days I will build this temple back up? God, this was all God. 750 years later, he did this to Jonah, and then Jesus reveals the meaning of this to the people. In Matthew chapter 12, he says, Then certain of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. But he, Jesus, answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. There shall no sign be given to it, but the sign of the prophet Jonah. He says, I'll give you a sign. What do you think about this? For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the well's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. No, no sane person could control how long they were going to be in the grave. No sane person could resurrect themselves from the grave, let alone give the time schedule that it would happen in. But God did. Why did it have to be three days? Well, there's all sorts of Old Testament precedent why that might have been. God has a meaning for everything he does. But ultimately, it had to be three days because God said it would be. God said it would be three days, and his purposes always come to pass. Always. And we find ourselves now on Sunday morning the resurrection, just as God said it would be. Second thing we see is God's providence in the people he uses to accomplish his purposes. We'll do a little bit of a study in your fellowship group this coming Wednesday on really an amazing example of this in Scripture, the life of Joseph. Amazing example of God's providence. God working in spite of the will, the free will that he gives to men and women throughout history. God works his own purposes through all of that just like he did right now. How so? Well, let's read chapter 28 and verse 1. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. You may just pass by that, knowing the resurrection story, but where did that sepulcher, where did that tomb come from? Does that mean anything? Here's, as I study this this week, it absolutely does. <laughs> Just a random tomb that they picked. Of course, not if you know the story. Jesus here was buried in a new bench tomb. They call it an arcosoleum. It was for wealthy people. It was owned by Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, a prominent member of the chief priests and elders that we find throughout chapter 27, throughout chapter 28, totally instrumental in their own plans, but yet totally in the plan of God against Jesus at every step of the way, 
even being pronounced an innocent man. They convinced the people to crucify him. At, at every, every angle, they were trying to deceive the people that this was not the Messiah, even to the fact that they went before Pilate after Jesus had, been, um, had died on the cross, had been buried in the tomb. They went to Pilate and said, listen, we're, we're afraid that his disciples are going to come and make up this story that he did actually rise from the grave. They're going to go steal his body from the tomb and then tell everybody he rose from the grave. So would you give us a guard and seal that tomb so that we, that, that's not going to happen. They can't, they can't deceive us again. They said so that this, this deception will be worse than the first, okay? Meaning what? The, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. When Jesus came in the fanfare, the people actually believed he's, he was the Messiah. They're saying he deceived the people then. If his disciples can come in and steal his body, they're going to deceive the people again. Every step of the way. But in that group was a man. Probably two men. Nicodemus may have been in that same group. But in that group was a man, Joseph of Arimathea. And he says that Joseph of Arimathea in chapter 27 was a rich man. Just rewind just a little bit in your chapter there. Verse 57 of chapter 27, And when the even was come, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who also himself was Jesus' disciple. He went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be delivered. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, laid it in his own new tomb, which he'd hewn out in a rock, and he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and departed. You know, there's a lot of things we could say about Joseph. Um, you know, he was a prominent member, as far as we know, of the Sanhedrin. That was the ruling body at that time. He, um, you know, several of the Gospels give us some clues as to Joseph of Arimathea, Arimathea bearing where he lived. It was more than likely close by to the city of Jerusalem here. We know that it was somewhat in the proximity because his tomb was very easily gotten to. They got to it very quickly. Matter of fact, even today you can go... I don't know how recent this is. In the last decade or so, they have uncovered a tomb that they believe is the tomb that Jesus Christ was buried in. And it's literally a stone's throw, I've been told, from where they believe Jesus was crucified. So he just happened to be there, this guy. But really what's most interesting is in verse 57, when the even was come, there came a rich man. Well, out of all the things we could have said about him, why, why that one? It doesn't tell everybody else's economic status. Why him? Well, here's a problem. See, criminals didn't get a tomb. Roman practice in crucifixion, which the Jews, the, the scribes, I'm mean, sorry, the, the chief priests and the elders convinced Pilate to put him on the cross, even though he wasn't guilty. And so if they're going to do it, they're going to do it according to their ways. They put him on the cross with two thieves, remember? Criminals didn't get a decent burial. Typically, the Romans would either throw them in a pile and burn them, or they would leave the body hanging on the cross for the birds and, and the vultures to come and pick the bodies, uh, pick them apart. It was the ultimate act of degradation and shame given to the criminals that were worthy of that death. That was Jesus. And as despicable as you and I may think that is, in God's providence... God used that very fact. Sabbath is coming. Joseph of Arimathea comes out of 
the woodwork. It says in another gospel that he was a disciple, but a secret disciple for fear of the Jews. What was he afraid of? Well, this was similar to maybe in another country where when you profess the name of Christ, you lose everything. You lose your family, you lose your wealth, you lose your possessions. He was a member of the group that crucified Jesus. But it says he did not consent unto his death. At some point, Joseph of Arimathea realized somehow in his heart, I believe Jesus was really what he said he was. And he comes out of the shadows. And please keep in mind that he was not doing this because he had seen Jesus rise from the grave and now his faith was made whole. Jesus was still dead. Joseph steps out and gives up everything for Jesus. Takes his body down puts it in his brand new tomb. Why is that important? Well, in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9, the prophecy of Jesus the Messiah, one of many, says this, he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. We know where the grave with the wicked would be, be out burning in a pile. It'd be just a, just a dead pile of bodies in a hole somewhere for the dogs and, and the vultures to come and pick apart humiliation and degradation for those people in the acts that they did as criminals. But this was the Messiah's prophecy over 700 years earlier. Joseph had to be a rich man. He had to be. Joseph had uh, probably a bench tomb. They're only owned by the upper class of society. It would have had to have been a new tomb. Okay, would have had to have been, they would never have taken a tomb that had people already in it, family members already in it, and put a criminal in there. Jews believe that would defile the entire family. And that's, that's something that they that carried over from the law, the law of Moses. The second problem we see here is that the Romans hung Jesus on a tree. Oh, sorry, we're not there yet. The Romans hung Jesus on a tree. And in, in, uh, let me tell you what the problem is. The law of Moses in Deuteronomy 21 says, And if a man have committed a sin worthy of death, and he be put to death, and thou hang him on a tree... His body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt in any wise bury him that day. For he that is hanged is accursed of God, that thy land be not defiled, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. You saw some clues at what point in history this verse was written to the Jews as they are heading into the promised land. They have a list of protections and guidelines to follow so that they would be the people God intended for them to be. They would not be overrun by the heathenism in the land they're going to take over. And this is one of the things he said. Don't defile yourself. If someone hangs on a tree, do not let him remain all night upon the tree. Well, that's, that's a problem because criminals that hung on the cross normally hung there for a long time. So what was God in his providence going to do? Well, the next day was Sabbath, right? You say, well, what's the big deal with that? Well, not only was this Sabbath, but the Bible says this was the high day, meaning this was like the Sabbath of Sabbaths. This was Passover. Passover lands on a Sabbath day, but it's, it's the most respected Sabbath day of the entire year. And they, the Jews, even, even in all their legalism and despicable reasons for what they did, they could not, even though they're willing to kill the Lord on the Sabbath, They could not have him, his dead body, defiling their land. 
So picking and choosing of what they wanted to follow in the law, right? This is typical of them. But death on a cross usually took days, but not this time. What does it say in chapter 27? Just rewind in our passage a little bit. In verse number 50, Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. You know, in John, I believe it's chapter 10, Jesus said, no man taketh my life from me. I both lay it down, and I'll raise it up again. And here he did. He did it before the day was over. He did it. So how do you know that? Even Pilate was shocked when he found out that Jesus was already dead because that did not happen. Matter of fact, when Joseph came and asked for the body, you can check it out, I think it's in Mark 15, Joseph comes and asks for the body, and he said, you mean he's dead already? Sends a centurion to check. And he did not give Joseph permission to take that body, which he normally wouldn't do anyways. It was going to get burned. But Jesus laid down his own life before Passover, right when God said he would do it. Jesus did what only he could do. And I want to end with that this morning with this thought in mind. If God can engineer, and by the way, this was just like a little sliver of the providence we see leading up to the resurrection and the the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just a sliver. Study it for yourself. If God could do all of that to make the death and resurrection of Jesus what it needed to be to fulfill his purposes, can can you not allow that to strengthen your faith in a God that you and I, quite honestly, have trouble trusting him with simple day-to-day things? Can we not have a little more faith that God will accomplish his purposes? Isaiah chapter 14, verse 27, Isaiah says, For the Lord of hosts hath purposed, and who shall disannul it? His hand is stretched out. Who shall turn it back? Oh, the devil, mankind, this lost world, at every step of the way would have stopped what was getting ready to happen if they even really knew exactly what it was. But through all of the will of man, through all of the uh, stops and the deception and the scheduling and the commands and the traditions and the legalism, through all of that, God weaves his purpose to resurrect the Lord Jesus Christ so that he is now Lord and Savior, the captain of our salvation, as the writer of Hebrews says, the one who has been victorious over death and the grave, the one who has bought you And I. Our question this morning is, do we live like a purchased possession? And if not, what is the problem? Do you not believe that this is real? Have you actually taken the Bible and just studied the Bible? It is amazing what God says about himself. You know, unfortunately, many times we get so caught up in the debate on whether this is true that we spend very little time in the Word of God ourselves. And if you'll do that, if you'll go to God's Word with a searching heart, I will promise you, you will find Him in those pages. And the deeper you look and the more intentional you search, God will reveal Himself to you. And it is...
He is amazing. He lives. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Lord, we honor you this morning. You're the only one in this room worthy of honor. You're the only one in this universe worthy of honor. We praise you. Lord, I can't think of anything in this life that would be more honoring than a sinner bowing his heart and mind to the Lord Jesus Christ today. A man, a woman, a young person coming to Jesus Christ, repenting of their sins and turning to you by faith. I mean, Lord, is it really that hard to believe? I think if we're honest in here this morning, Lord, as we heard your words, as the truth was spoken, if we were allowing ourselves to receive, Lord, it burned within us. It brought up questions that we can't dismiss. Lord, would you give us the courage to act upon that today? Lord, we love you. In your name, amen. Would you stand with